Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, and I want to read from this third chapter just the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. And this is the word of God for you as people. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, bless us with your spirit. Uh, You have granted your spirit to your church, and we need your spirit. Holy Spirit of God, come to your people. Help us to see who we are. Help us to gain some glimpses of how it is that we are to live, and help us to fix our final gaze, our ultimate gaze, upon this glorious day when you will return and transform these lowly bodies into the same glorious likeness of yourself. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. My guess is that uh, quite a few of you watched Returns from South Carolina last evening, or maybe uh, you picked up the newspaper this morning and read about what transpired in South Carolina. Maybe you watched a whole lot of analysis and, and listened to speeches and, and all of that. Florida, brace yourself because it's coming here, right? It's coming here. Maybe you know that uh, in every election year since 1980, the winner of the South Carolina primary has gone on to be the nominee of, in this case, the Republican Party. Maybe you know that, but here's the difference, according to Karl Rove. In every one of those instances... The winner of South Carolina had won either New Hampshire or Iowa. But this year, we've got three primaries and three winners. All bets are off. It's going to be an interesting next couple of months. Maybe you also are aware that today, January 22nd, 2012, is the 39th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, which effectively overturned laws in 50 states concerning abortion and made abortion legal until the time of viability, determined at that time, at the time of that decision, to be somewhere between 24 and 28 weeks gestation. 39 years since Roe v. Wade. An election year, a significant date, 
along with a whole lot of other issues and concerns, the economy, ongoing concerns about terrorism, to quote Jesus, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. It seems to me that all of this taken together raises a really, really big question. How am I as a Christian to live? How am I as a Christian to live? How am I as a Christian, how are we as a church to think and live in the midst of all of this? Am I striking a responsive chord with anybody or is this just for me? How am I, how are we as Christians, as the church to live in the midst of this? And I frankly have found these two passages from Jeremiah and from Paul's letter to the Philippians to be extremely helpful as I try to live and as I try to live out the Christian life at this time and in this place. So what I hope this will do this morning is give us some guidance and even encouragement as we think about this question and seek to answer the question, the question that Francis Schaeffer asked uh, all of those decades ago, how then should we live, or how should we then live, or however it was that he put the question. How should we live? This is a kind of a 30,000-foot view. It may be a review for some of you. Occasionally, in the next few minutes, I want to dive down from 30,000 feet to touch some particulars, some particular details. But what I want to do is, is give us a few principles, which I trust, again, will be both guidance and encouragement to us. Let's think first about Jeremiah 29, these seven verses that we've read together. And here's the first thing that I want to affirm and suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that Jeremiah 29 is a picture, actually it's a bit more than a picture, but at the very least, Jeremiah 29 is a picture of the church. It has wonderful application to us. And here's what I mean by this. Think with me about this. Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 16, and says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. That means that Jeremiah 29 is given by God, breathed out by God, breathed out by Him, and it is profitable for you. It is profitable for you, so that you may be competent, Equipped for every good work. At the very least, Jeremiah 29 is that. But I want to suggest to you that it's more than that. Paul also writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, in describing the Exodus and in referring to the people's rebellion in the midst of the Exodus in the wilderness, Paul writes this. He says, now these things happened to them as an example to us or for us. They were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. 
these things happened to them as an example to us, for us. They were written for our instruction. Now, here's the significant thing about this. The word that you find in the text is the word from which we get our word type. Type. Typology in the scriptures is a really big deal, a really big idea. And here's what the original word meant. A type is a, quote, figure formed by a blow or impression. A type is a figure formed by a blow or impression. Think of soft wax and a signet ring. The signet ring is pressed into the wax. The wax becomes the type, the impression of the ring. Thinking theologically, a type is a person or a thing prefiguring a future person or thing, pointing away from itself to a future and greater reality. So when you read Jeremiah 29, you understand that just as was true of the Exodus, Paul says these things were written as examples, that is, as types. They were written for our instruction. Those types point away from themselves to something else. They point in the direction of the thing that makes the impression. When it comes to the offices of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament, the Davidic office, the Levitical priesthood, the prophetic office, embodied by all of the prophets, they point away from themselves to the greater reality who is Jesus Christ. And when Israel is described in the Old Testament as a type, it is pointing away from itself to a greater reality. And that greater reality is the church. That's why at the end of Galatians chapter 6, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. So when we read Jeremiah chapter 29, we're not just learning lessons from Israel's experience, which we certainly are. We take the language of the Scriptures, seriously, we understand that Jeremiah 29 describes us. It certainly described the nation Israel, carried away from its homeland, carried away from its promised land, into exile, in Babylon, where Israel had to live under the authority of a non-believing king. An authority ultimately established by God. Who are we as Christians? If we take typology seriously, friends, if we take typology seriously, if we look at Jeremiah 29 seriously, we as Christians are a people living in exile. We are not at home. We are not at home here. We are not at home in this nation. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. There is no place on this planet I would rather live 
There is no decade and no century in the whole of human history in which I would rather live. But you understand, this is not your home. You are an exiled people living away from your home, living under the authority of a government established by God, but over which God himself rules and reigns for his own glory and ultimately for the good of his people. Jeremiah 29 describes an exiled people living away from their home. We are the greater expression of that, living in this day and in this time. We have to read these passages, passages like Jeremiah 29, through the lens of the cross. And understand, not only is Jeremiah 29 a picture of the church, not only is the church the greater and more true expression of Jeremiah 29, but the whole of Israel's history is finally and more fully expressed in the life of the church. Jesus says, when he is about to go to Jerusalem, there to be be betrayed, Jesus, as he meets with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, in his interaction with Moses and Elijah, is talking about his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word in the original is exodus. Jesus is our exodus. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our promised land. And Jesus is our greater king. So this is the first thing. Jeremiah 29 is a picture of the church, the people of God, living at this earthly level under the authority honestly and truly, of a foreign and alien power. That is who we are. But here's the second thing. We live under the authority of that foreign power, that alien power, understanding that there is a higher authority and a more supreme power. Aren't you struck by the contrast that there is between verses 1 and then verse 4. Look at verse 1. These are the words, this is Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who took Israel into exile? Verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took Israel into exile. But look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who sent Israel into exile? The Lord of hosts. How do you account for the fact that Israel is where she is? 
You can look at the human level. You can say, well, it's Nebuchadnezzar, that rapacious Babylonian who marched across the Fertile Crescent and made an assault upon the nation and and dragged all of these people away from their home. But as a Christian, one who understands passages like Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein. Psalm 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours also. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Psalm 47, verse 7. God is the king of all the earth. And for that reason, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. So you ask, how did we get here? Well, there are two answers, aren't there? Nebuchadnezzar, that rapacious Babylonian. But the ultimate answer is the king of the kings and the lord of the lords. Drop down very quickly, precipitously, to your own life. Why are you where you are. Why are you where you are? Why are your circumstances the circumstances of your life? Yes, there are circumstances that shape us, that mold us, that explain why we are where we are. Yes, there are people in our lives who shape and and who explain why it is that we are where we are. Yes, there are decisions outside our control, all kinds of factors outside our control that answer the question, why am I where I am? But the ultimate and final answer, whether we're thinking about nations and the whole of human history or my personal and individual experience, When I sing Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and they who dwell therein, that includes me. He is the ultimate explanation for why I am where I am and for why we are where we are. He is sovereign. He is the King of glory. I wish I could take 15 minutes for you, with you right now. I can't. If you want to stick around afterwards, we'll chat. But if I could take 15 minutes right now, I would do an exposition for you, for those of you who have not heard this, a little exposition of a couple of short paragraphs in Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology in which he talks about the knowledge of God. And how vast and incomprehensible is the knowledge of God. And how the knowledge of God is not only vast and incomprehensible, touching all things as they are, all things as they are in all of their actual relationships to each other, all things as they are in all of their possible relationships to each other, all things that might be but which do not exist, but which could exist in all of their possible relationships to things that really are. And then I would tell you that the knowledge of God, pretty soon it's going to be 15 minutes. I would tell you then, having told you all of that, I would tell you that the knowledge of God is undistracted. 
And what that means is that God's knowledge of you is personal and specific and he is not distracted from his personal, comprehensive, and specific knowledge of you by his personal and specific and comprehensive knowledge of someone else. And when you wed his knowledge to his power, you begin to understand at some level what it is that we mean when we say that God is sovereign. He knows everything he needs to know. And he has all power to do what it is that he wants to do. That's your king, my friends. That is your president, my friends. That is your Lord. The king of glory who is infinite and eternal. And he is the ruler of the nations. And so here we are, a people, an exiled people, living away from our home, but living ultimately under the rule and authority and control of the great sovereign who not only knows everything and not only possesses all power, but is immeasurably and infinitely good. He is good. And so we are where we are, whether we think of it personally and individually or corporately together as a church. We are where we are at the end of the day. Though there are circumstances and persons and factors and decisions and all kinds of things which we barely understand and which are outside of our control, but which we know to be real, ultimately we are where we are. Because God is the ultimate king, ruler, and sovereign. So what are we to do? What are we to do? How are we to live? Well, look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 29. We have to be so brief about this. But just look at verses 5 and 6. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. How are we to live? Even while we are not at home but living in exile, how are we to live? We are to live the way human beings live. We live the way human beings live. We live in the midst of this exiled state the way human beings live. And here's the thing. Again, we need an hour to talk about this. We live as the people of God and not as Babylonians. (laughs) We live as the people of God and not as Babylonians. We live as the people of God so that the world around us sniffs, smells, gets hints at, observes something of the difference that it makes for the people of God formed, shaped, molded by God's instruction, by His understanding of how human beings live, by His Word. We live trusting God that somehow the world around us will sniff out the difference. We'll see the difference. We'll hear the difference. We live as human beings live. We make babies. 
We build houses. We plant gardens. We create works of art. We sing songs. We engage one another. But you see, all of these human activities are molded and shaped, formed under the authority of God who has given us instruction in His Word so that we might understand how it is that human beings live. And what is at the center of our life, what is at the center of our life is the worship of the great King. See, i got to share a problem I have. i got a problem. And I want to share it with you. Here's my struggle with where the church is today. And I know I'm probably sort of preaching to the choir in many respects. My concern is that Monday through Saturday are shaping Sunday. Rather than Sunday. Resurrection Day, the day of new creation, the day of new life, the day that is again a picture for us of what we anticipate and are looking forward to, rather than Sunday so molding, so shaping, so informing us that we take Sunday out into Monday through Saturday. The conception of a Jew in the Old Testament the conception of time for the Jew was that Sabbath, Sabbath worship was a coming apart from this world which is plagued by the curse to step outside of that experience for just a brief and short little bit of time to taste greater glories. And walking away from that day in the direction of the next day, one would have the glories of the previous Sabbath in the rearview mirror and the glories of the next Sabbath through the windshield in front of you. And life was defined by what I tasted last Sabbath and what I expect to taste this next Sabbath. And that is what defined for the people of God the nature of reality. That is what is at the heart and soul of the life of the people of God. So what do we do in the midst? We do what human beings do, but we do it as the people of God in the midst of this world whose life ultimately is defined not by what transpires Monday through Saturday, but, by, but is defined by what transpired on a particular first day of the week when Jesus was raised and emerged from the tomb, presenting for us the trajectory of life, life moving in the direction of the new creation. And we're to taste that week by week. We're to catch the fragrance of that week by week and carry that fragrance out into the other days of the week. That's number three. We do the things that human beings do as the people of God, defined by worship. And here's the fourth thing. We are called to seek the welfare of the city to which we have been called. 
We are told to pray for it. We've done that. And I trust you'll continue to do that. Pray for the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has called us. But we are also to seek the welfare of the city to which we have been called. Three times in this verse, there is a word translated welfare. Some translations translate that word peace. Seek the peace of the city to which the Lord your God has called you. The word in the original is shalom. Seek the shalom of the city to which the Lord your God has called you. This is another 30-minute sermon. I'm sorry. But very quickly and very briefly, let's understand that shalom is much more than simply peace. It is much more than simply welfare. It includes the ideas of prosperity and well-being. Here's a great word. It's a word that shows up actually in a song by Mary Chapin Carpenter. Who would ever think that a country rock person would use a word like halcyon? Halcyon. H-A-L-C-Y-O-N. Halcyon. It describes peaceful, happy, carefree, tranquil existence. All of those ideas are taken up in this idea of shalom, prosperity, well-being, happiness, tranquility. And it even includes aesthetic kinds of qualities, meaning beauty and order. To seek the welfare of the city is to seek something comprehensively large. And to seek it for the place to which we have been called, this passage tells us, means that we are acting actually in our own best interests. Seek the peace of the city to which the Lord your God has called you, for in its peace, in its shalom, you will find your own shalom. Now, some examples. At the center of what it means to seek the welfare of the city is preaching. Preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, preaching, heralding, announcing the arrival of another king, a greater king, a better king, who by his life, death, Resurrection and ascension has overcome sin and death and all the powers of evil and who is himself this day in and through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit in the heralding of this gospel, inviting people to repent, to turn from the kingdoms of this world, to turn from the false idols, the false saviors, gods that cannot save them. He is moment by moment in the preaching of the gospel as the king of glory inviting people to turn away from all of this worldliness and not just external moralities, but the idolatries that grow up in our hearts inviting them to turn away from gods that cannot save and come into this kingdom. And know forgiveness and freedom and life and tastes 
of a glory yet to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you shalom. What is at the heart, the non-negotiable factor and element in living as exiles in the midst of this land, as those living under God's authority, what is the central and non-negotiable element is preaching the whole counsel of God, every bit of it as best we are able. Teaching it, sharing it, calling people's attention to it and summoning them to become citizens, not of an earthly kingdom, but of an eternal kingdom that will never end. What else does it mean to seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has called us? It means that William Wilberforce, for 26 years, introduces legislation into the House of Parliament seeking to abolish the slave trade in the British kingdom. 26 consecutive years seeking the peace of the city to which the Lord God had called him. It means Lord Shaftesbury, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, introducing legislation seeking the reform of child labor practices in England in the 19th century. Lord Shaftesbury, who was also the president of the British and Foreign Bible Society. What does it mean to seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has called us? It means that people in states across this country, 12 of them, 12 states, groups of people who have sought legally to define personhood as existing from conception and until death. That is what it means to seek the welfare of the city to which God has called us. Will the city always understand? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the city won't understand. We are called upon by God to seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has called us, whether they understand or not. What does it look like to seek the welfare of the city? It looks like George Williams, 23-year-old draper living in London, who became, in effect, the founder of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, an organization whose purpose is, quote, to unite all young Christian men in the extension and expansion of the kingdom of God. Forget what has happened to the YMCA. Simply understand that in every generation, Christians have read Jeremiah 29 and have understood something of what it means to seek the welfare of the city to which God has called them. What does it mean to seek the welfare of the city? Forgive me for pointing you out. I trust I don't embarrass you, but it means Pat Geyer taking the initiative with some of the folks of our church, one of our deacons, asking the question, how can we support the source, a ministry here locally of which many of you are aware, seeking to care 
for those in need. What does it look like to seek the welfare of the city? It means drilling water wells in Tanzania. Water wells connected to churches so that people can come get real water and can hear of a greater water. A water that leads to eternal life. So, these are just examples of what it looks like for us to be faithful as the people of God living as an exiled people under the authority of the great king, defined by the great event of the resurrection of Jesus, doing ordinary and common things as God would have us do them, and then seeking the well-being of the city to which we have been called. All the while, and I conclude with Philippians chapter 3, all the while understanding that if you are a Christian today, your citizenship is in heaven from which you await a Savior. I have to be so careful with this. I've had several people ask me in recent months, it's the United States of America, a Christian nation. I have to be so careful as I answer this. My answer is this. There is one Christian nation. It is the church of Jesus Christ. A nation gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue across the face of the earth and across the whole of human history. Has this nation been extraordinarily blessed by the presence of the gospel in this nation? Absolutely. Is it sad and tragic that we are losing our moorings, both some sense, in some sense theological and political? Absolutely. But let us never confuse who we are. And let us never confuse an earthly, geopolitical reality favored and blessed by God with the true nation of God, the church of Jesus Christ, a people gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue across the whole of humankind and across the whole of human history. And we as Christians do what we are to do, but always remembering that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together, and then I'll invite you to stand, and we'll sing, at the name of Jesus, a passage taken from Philippians. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to see these things, know these things, embrace these things, understand who we are and what it is that you call us to so that we might be found faithful in our day and in our time and stir up our hope that we belong to a king who will return to finish what he started, to enter into judgment with the nations, and execute righteousness in all the earth to the praise of his glorious name. Jesus, help us to be faithful until that day. Amen.